1: Sir, among the many millions in America and Europe who rejoice in your election to office, we embrace the first opportunity which we have enjoyed in our collective capacity since your inauguration to express our great satisfaction in your appointment to the Chief Magistracy in the United States. And though our mode of expression may be less courtly and pompous than what many others clothe their addresses with, we beg you, sir, to believe that none are more sincere. Our sentiments are uniformly in the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, that no man ought to suffer in name, person or effects on account of his religious opinions, that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbour. But sir, our constitution of government is not specific. Sir. We are sensible that the President of the United States is not the national legislator and also sensible that the national government cannot destroy the laws of each state. But our hopes are strong that the sentiments of our beloved President, which have such genial effect already, like the radiant beams of the sun, will shine and prevail through all these states and all the world to hierarchy and tyranny be destroyed from the earth. Sir, when we reflect on your past services and see a glow of philanthropy and good will shining forth in a course of more than thirty years, we have reason to believe that America's God has raised you up to fill the chair of state out of that good which will he bears to the millions which you preside over. May God strengthen you for your arduous task, which Providence and the voice of the people have called you to sustain and support you in your administration against all the predetermined opposition of those who wish to rise to wealth and importance of the poverty and subjection of the people. Signed on behalf of the Association.
0: Gentlemen. The affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you are so good as to express towards me, on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association, give me the highest satisfaction. My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion, as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing.' Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his god— that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state." Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man and tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem. Thomas Jefferson.
2: Jefferson's letter of January 1st, 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association has become one of the most widely cited and quoted letters out of Jefferson's lengthy correspondence. In particular, the quote, Wall of Separation Between Church and State Statement has been discussed by scholars and even cited by Supreme Court justices in rulings as speaking to Jefferson's interpretation and, indeed, the Founding Fathers' interpretation of the First Amendment to the Constitution. Beyond the importance of the letter to future generations, I think that the crafting of the letter in the contemporary context provide much in the way of understanding the early Jefferson administration— And thus, it is here that I would like to begin this episode. Before we dive in, however, I'd like to welcome all of you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Rob and Jamie from Totalis Rankium for providing the intro quotes for this episode. For those of you who haven't checked it out, Totalis Rankium provides a more comedic spin not only to U.S. presidential history, but also the history of Roman emperors. In their series, they look at the lives of emperors and presidents respectively, and rank them on predetermined criteria, as well as throw in some humorous commentary that often has me laughing out loud, even when it's socially awkward to do so. I have Rob and Jamie to thank for receiving many odd looks and second glances on buses, subways, and sidewalks. The side eye is worth it though, as it's entertaining content, and there are great guys who have been staunch supporters of this podcast, so I likewise invite you to check them out. As always, links will be available on social media as well as on the source notes page for this episode, or you can go to totalisrancium all one word dot com, or do a search for totalisrancium online. So let's start with the first quote, the letter from the Danbury Baptist Association that occasioned Jefferson's response. We haven't talked much about religion in the early republic thus far in the podcast, but as religion and politics will increasingly intermingle in the lead up to the Civil War, This seems like as good of a time as any to broach the subject. As noted by Matt McCook in his dissertation, Aliens in the World, Sectarians, Secularism, and the Second Great Awakening, at the same time as the nation was undergoing changes in its political landscape in the late 18th century leading into the new century, so too was there a change in the religious schema of the nation. Quote, In the course of just one generation, those who constituted religious establishments before the revolution Anglicans, and Congregationalists lost ground to religious groups never officially sponsored by any American government. Methodists, Baptists, and to a lesser extent Presbyterians reigned supreme in the Jacksonian period. Not only did these evangelical Christians have numerical superiority with their army of committed volunteers, they exerted the greatest influence over America's culture, habits, and institutions. And in the absence of a religion established by law, they turned early 19th century America into a Protestant evangelical empire. Indeed, McCook cites Jefferson's election as having inspired some religious leaders in their work. And likewise, historian Johann Reims wrote of his belief that the election of 1800 had an impact on Jefferson and his view of the connection between religion and public life. During the election, Jefferson had been attacked, particularly in New England, as being, quote, An immoral and godless man who would order the confiscation of Bibles. Nothing could be further from the truth, as Jefferson was a very deep thinker on the subject of religion and had a strong faith that, though it may not have fit within the confines of Christian ideologies that were predominant in his contemporary society, still reflected a belief in a higher being. He did not, however, feel the need to share his ideas on faith and religion in the general public sphere, just as he did not parade other intimate details of his life, like his relations with his family or his health, out in public. It is through our access to his correspondence that we have not only a better understanding of his personal religious beliefs, but also his intent with the Danbury Baptist Letter. As this is a podcast on the presidency rather than Jefferson personally, I will defer to scholars such as Edwin Gosstad and Charles Sanford who have delved more deeply into Jefferson’s religious life. But we do need to concern ourselves with his intent behind his response to the initial letter from the Danbury Baptist Association. In responding to such a letter, an American leader of the early 19th century had to assume that the response would end up being printed in a newspaper. Thus, it is worth noting that Jefferson consulted with members of his cabinet about his response. The Danbury that was the home of this religious organization was in Connecticut. Thus, Jefferson sent drafts of his response to Attorney General Levi Lincoln of Massachusetts and Postmaster General Gideon Granger of Connecticut. As noted by Dumas Malone in his analysis of the letter, these two would better understand the prevailing sentiments in New England and how his response would be read. Though Granger felt that it might cause, quote, a temporary spasm among the established religionists. He felt that the state was ripe for change and had no recommendations for changes to Jefferson's initial draft. Lincoln, however, called on Jefferson to remove a section in which he said that he felt that presidential calls for fasting and Thanksgiving were not constitutional. Lincoln felt this might be a step too far even for Democratic-Republicans in New England, and Jefferson listened to his advice and left it out of his final draft. As noted by Johann Niem in an article in the Journal of the Early Republic, Scholars have long debated exactly what Jefferson meant by, quote-unquote, a wall of separation between church and state. But like Neem, I feel that Jefferson's intent with the letter can be better understood in the next sentence. Quote, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. In order to better understand the circumstances under which Jefferson wrote this letter, I think it is worthwhile to note that, though in decline, the Spanish Inquisition was still actually going on when Jefferson set pen to paper in this response. There were still contemporary examples in European circles of a predominant religious group impeding the political rights of other groups. Indeed, we've already discussed in episode 3.5, the Irish debate in Great Britain as one example. Many Americans, including the president, had witnessed with their own eyes how religion had played a role in sustaining the colonial structure prior to independence and how religious tolerance had been promoted in order to gain support from adherence to various Christian doctrines for the revolutionary cause. This led Jefferson, as well as other contemporaries in the United States, to see the importance of ensuring that no one Christian ideology or group was adopted as a national religion. Jefferson's purpose with this letter, however, doesn't seem to be religious. Rather, it was political. Jefferson's focus wasn't establishing the wall of separation, but rather how things should function with the wall already established. This was a letter calling on the Danbury Baptists and all others to do their social duty, which, in Jefferson's view, was to lend their support to him. Clearly, as a person who had long supported the separation of church and state, He was on the side of the Danbury Baptist Association, and he needed the support of anyone he could get in Connecticut, that bulwark of federalism as we discussed back in episode 3.4. While courting popular support in Connecticut, Jefferson was presented with a sign of his appeal among the people on the same day as sending the letter to Danbury. Hello,
1: everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.
2: As had become customary with his predecessors, Jefferson hosted a New Year's reception at the President's house to mark the dawning of 1802. This particular reception was notable, though, for Jefferson was presented with a very special gift by Elder John Leland, a Baptist from Cheshire, Massachusetts. Members of Leland's congregation had worked over the summer to collect the milk of, by their account, 900 cows, out of which Leland assured everyone that, quote, not one of them was a Federalist and made a block of cheese that was, quote, more than four feet in diameter, 15 inches thick, and weighed at 1,235 pounds. While I imagine that a number of you have heard of the mammoth block of cheese before, you may not realize this was not the first mammoth food item Jefferson had received while in office. On October 20th, 1801, the hind quarter of a calf that was supposedly 438 pounds while alive was received at the president's house, as a gift from butchers of Philadelphia to mark their, quote, confidence in the man who, while a private citizen, labored with success to remove the European prejudice that animals were inferior and denigrated in the New World. The mammoth veal has never really caught on in the history books quite as much as the mammoth cheese, possibly in part due to the fact that, when it reached Jefferson, it was, quote, so far advanced as to be condemned for the table. Jefferson was still appreciative of, quote, the beauty of its appearance and gave the butchers, quote, my sincere thanks for this mark of your attention and receive with very great satisfaction the expressions of your attachment to the form and principles of our government. This public affection was important for Jefferson to retain as he, his administration, and the Democratic-Republican-led Congress pushed forward with their reform agenda in 1802. As discussed in episode 3.4. One area of the federal government that Jefferson and his supporters had eyed for reform, but over which they had little control when he originally came to office as chief executive, was the judicial branch. As we've seen in our series to date, judges in the early republic were far from apolitical. Luckily for Jefferson, he had an unexpected ally in his quest to reform the judiciary. According to his biographer, Gene Edward Smith, Chief Justice John Marshall started his tenure of office with a goal of, quote, removing the Supreme Court from partisan politics and reassert its judicial authority. Though Marshall had played an important leadership role in the Federalist Party prior to his elevation to the bench, he was more of an Adams Federalist and saw that partisanship was not always the right means to achieve certain ends. The court could scarcely have had less respect than it did in 1801. Forced to accept a half finished committee room in the unfinished U.S. Capitol building because it had not been seen as important to plan a building or even a room of their own for the court. Part of the lack of respect for the court at the time came from their lack of unity. Again, from Smith, the court at that point was composed of, quote, five potentially fractious associates who had little experience working together and who were profoundly jealous of their individual prerogatives. More of the focus of the work of Supreme Court justices up to that point had been in their circuit-riding duties, not in their coming together as one body and hearing cases while in session. Marshall was determined to change this. Thus, when the court members came to Washington, D.C. for their first session since Jefferson's inauguration in August 1801, they found that Marshall had made arrangements for all of them to stay at Conrad and Munn's boarding house, gathered together under one roof to live as well as work. Marshall started to work to develop the disparate justices into a unified team. At this session, they would all follow the chief justice's lead and wear simple black robes, which was described by Smith as, quote, a symbolic peace offering to the Republican ascendancy. After hearing arguments in the case of Talbot versus Seaman, the justices would spend nearly a week debating over meals and in the evening. And finally, they came to a unanimous decision. In what would become precedent, they issued their decision in what they called the, quote, opinion of the court. And Marshall, taking a cue from Judge Edmund Pendleton of the Virginia Court of Appeals, persuaded his colleagues that he, as Chief Justice, should announce the court's opinion. One voice, one decision, one court. Marshall's attempts to establish a nonpartisan judicial authority, however, would not be enough for the Democratic-Republicans. And Jefferson, in his annual message to Congress, alluded to one of their main points of contention with the federal judiciary as it stood. We discussed the Judiciary Act of 1801 in episode 2.24, but for those who need a refresher, this was an act passed at the end of the 6th Congress just before the end of Adams's term, which doubled the number of circuit courts and created 23 new judgeships. To Adams and the Federalists, this had been much-needed reform, as the new circuit courts allowed for the end of circuit riding for the Supreme Court justices. A reform that the justices had requested for quite a while, especially the poor, unlucky justices stuck doing the nearly 1,800-mile-long Southern Circuit twice a year. In return for the end of their circuit riding responsibilities, the Judiciary Act also provided for the Supreme Court to be reduced to five justices rather than six in number upon the next vacancy to the court. With the circuit court burdens off of their shoulders, it was presumed that there wouldn't be as much for the justices to do, so why not reduce their headcount? Work on what would become the Judiciary Act of 1801 had started back in the first session of the 6th Congress in December 1799. Given the partisan tensions of the time, only Federalists were named to the committees in the House and Senate that drafted the legislation for the Judiciary Bill, and thus it became in total a Federalist reform and earned the ire of Democratic Republicans. First of all, it rankled Jefferson and his supporters that this act had created so many new judgeships that Adams then proceeded to fill with Federalists. Wasn't this just shameless court packing by the party that had lost control of the executive and legislative branches? To add insult to injury, they had taken away Jefferson's first opportunity to change the course of the Supreme Court by keeping him from naming a successor to the next justice to leave his seat. Democratic Republicans, Jefferson included, saw the Judiciary Act as less of a reform measure and more of an act of political grandstanding as the Federalists were headed out the door. Democratic Republicans generally had a negative opinion of the federal judiciary as a whole, considering its role in the prosecutions under the Sedition Act, and there was a concern that, by enlarging the jurisdiction of the courts by adding more circuit courts, the judiciary would begin to interfere more with state and local affairs, particularly in anti-federalist strongholds in the South and West. For all the work that Marshall had done to establish a sense of nonpartisan judicial authority, it soon became clear in one of the new circuit courts that the ideology had not filtered down from the top in that branch of the government just yet. A new circuit court had been established for the District of Columbia, and two of the three justices on the court were Federalists who had been appointed by Adams, James Marshall, brother of the Chief Justice, and Abigail Adams's nephew, William Cranch. At the first session of this new court, Cranch and Marshall attempted to push forward a prosecution of Samuel Harrison Smith, the editor of the National Intelligencer, for publishing an article that was critical of the federal judiciary. Thankfully for Smith, Jefferson had been able to name a Democratic Republican to the third judgeship on the court, and that judge and the grand jury blocked the effort by Cranch and Marshall. However, it demonstrated to the Democratic Republicans that they needed to take up the issue and do something to check the Federalist quote-unquote reform of the judicial branch once the 7th Congress came into session. The Jefferson administration had already done what it could to throw a wrench into any overreach by the judiciary by not delivering commissions to federal judgeships that had been confirmed by the 6th Congress in its final days, but that the Adams administration had not been able to send out before leaving office. As discussed in episode 3.4, President Jefferson felt that those commissions were invalid and, though he would ultimately appoint most of the same people to the same post, he asserted that the appointments were his prerogative, not Adams's, by resubmitting the names to the Senate and having them reconfirmed before sending out new commissions. In that previous episode, I told you to remember the name William Marbury. Marbury was one of the Adams appointees who had been confirmed by the Senate But whose commission had not been delivered, and his name not resubmitted to the Senate by Jefferson. If Jefferson and his cabinet thought that Marbury would take this dismissal lying down, they obviously didn't know William Marbury. When the Supreme Court reconvened in December 1801, former Attorney General Charles Lee appeared before the court to urge them to send an order to Secretary of State James Madison requesting that he provide justification as to why a writ of mandamus should not be issued which would compel him to deliver certain of the Adams appointees' commissions, including William Marbury's. Now, for those who don't know, a writ of mandamus is, as noted by Gene Edward Smith, quote, a judicial command instructing an officer of the government to perform a particular act. The court turned to Attorney General Levi Lincoln, who was present at the court, to respond. But Lincoln asserted, quote, that he had no instructions on the subject and requested time to consult with the administration. As only one of the Supreme Court justices was ready to rule on the matter at that point, Chief Justice Marshall announced that the court would take time to deliberate on the matter. Two days later, Marshall said that the court had decided to entertain Lee's motion and sent an order to Madison requesting a response to justify his action as well as put the case on the docket for the next term to be held in June 1802 to hear Madison's response and consider whether a writ of mandamus was justified. While the Supreme Court may have put their deliberations on the Marbury case on hold, Congress continued its debates over the future of the federal judiciary. Indeed, Senators John Breckinridge, Democratic Republican from Kentucky, and Stevens Thompson Mason, Democratic Republican from Virginia, saw the court's preliminary ruling in the Marbury case, quote, as an attack by the judiciary on the president through the Secretary of State and sped up their work to gather support for a repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801. Breckenridge put forward a bill on January 6, 1802, calling for a full repeal of the Judiciary Act and began to lay out his arguments, quote, that the Judiciary Act was unnecessary and improper and that Congress was fully within its rights to repeal the act. Breckinridge would rely on advice from former Senator John Taylor of Caroline, who was widely regarded as an expert in constructing conservative constitutional arguments, and would utilize statistics from the Jefferson administration to assert that the federal judiciary's workload was not heavy enough to justify the expansion provided for in the Judiciary Act of 1801. Taylor's arguments would aid the cause. But Breckinridge would find himself backpedaling a bit on the statistics as Senator Uriah Tracy, Federalist from Connecticut, successfully proved that Jefferson's numbers vastly underestimated the cases that had been instituted and were pending in federal courts. Despite this error, Breckinridge would continue to push forward, but he found that the numbers were not working in his favor. Democratic Republicans had a slim majority in the Senate and already one Democratic-Republican senator had announced his intention to join the Federalists in opposing repeal. Luckily, in mid-January, Vice President Burr arrived in Washington, D.C. and began to preside over the Senate. Surely, if the vote came to a tie, the Vice President could be counted on to cast the tie-breaking vote in favor of repeal, right? Mr. Vice President, you'll cast your vote for repeal, right? Burr had not had an easy go of it since assuming office as Vice President. Though nominally, he was the highest-ranking Democratic Republican in New York, in reality, his position offered him little real power. DeWitt Clinton's supporters and the Livingston faction were becoming fast partners in taking charge of the agenda and a majority of the patronage in New York State, leaving the vice president and his supporters out in the cold. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomask, at this point in his career, "quote it was as though Burr realized the fragility of his political position in New York his power base there was small, a few devoted followers, unsupported by any shared political philosophy, and held together by little more than the personal magnetism of their leader. With little power to influence matters either on a federal or state level, one can only imagine how Burr felt when he arrived in the Senate on January 15, 1802, to take up his seat as presiding officer of that body, the only authority that his position as vice president afforded him. With Burr seated, Breckinridge moved his bill through for a vote. The rules of the Senate require bills to go through multiple readings before they can be approved or voted down. On the vote to move the repeal bill to a second reading, the vote came down to a tie, and Burr cast his vote in favor of moving the bill forward. This vote would be ridiculed by Federalists, with Senator Governor Morris asserting that, if Burr had killed the bill with an A vote quote, that vote would, I believe, have made him president at the next election as Federalists would have rallied behind him. Burr, however, was not one to let an opportunity to try to have it both ways pass him by. The next day, a motion was made by Senator Jonathan Dayton, Federalist from New Jersey, to refer the bill to a select committee that was composed primarily of members unfavorable to repeal. Again, the vote came down to a tie, so all eyes turned to Burr. Burr voted in favor of Dayton's motion and the bill went into the committee with its fate uncertain. Democratic Republicans were furious. Burr biographer Lomas defends the decision as a nod towards a nonpartisan ideal for the position of president of the Senate. From Lomask, quote, it is hard to see how he could have voted other than he did, given his obligation as presiding officer of the Senate to deal as fairly as possible with both sides. Lomask also notes that there were some Democratic-Republican leaders who wrote to Burr afterwards, quote, to congratulate him on the even-handedness with which he had handled matters. This incident, however, would have a negative impact on his standing in the Democratic-Republican Party, as many saw this as yet another example of Burr trying to leave open the possibility of getting Federalist support for another challenge to Jefferson for the presidency. Despite Burr's sending the bill into committee, it turned out not to be the fait accompli that many had thought. The bill did come out of committee and, as Democratic-Republican leaders had managed to get a senator who was absent back in his seat in the meantime, Breckenridge was able to see the repeal bill through to passage on February 3rd, and it would pass without amendment by a large majority in the House a month later. By default with repeal, the Judiciary Act of 1789 was thus back as current law but repeal was quickly followed by a bill to amend the 1789 Act. This amending act, despite the objections of Federalists, did go at least part of the way towards addressing the issues that had led to calls for reform in the first place. The Supreme Court would remain at six seats, but instead of having two justices paired up and riding in three circuits, the Judiciary Act of 1802 provided for six circuit courts, and Supreme Court justices would be required to reside in their designated circuits. Each circuit court would be composed of the Supreme Court justice and district court justices, and the justices would have to ride their circuit twice a year. As they would yet again be on the road, the crafters of the new Judiciary Act decided to lighten the justices' load by reducing the number of terms that the Supreme Court would sit assembled from two to one a year. This provision of the new Judiciary Act would prove to be one of the most controversial, but we'll get to that in a minute. The repeal and replace of the Judiciary Act would demonstrate without a doubt that the Democratic Republicans were in charge of the federal government and would shake the foundation of any plans that Federalists may have had about the judicial branch serving as a bulwark to threaten the Democratic-Republican agenda until they could get back in power. However, Federalist leaders would turn the charges of partisanship back on Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans with the final bill containing the provision of the Supreme Court sitting for only one term annually. As the court had just sat for one of its planned two annual terms, the session that had been scheduled for June 1802 was canceled and the court wouldn't be able to sit again until February 1803. Thus, the Supreme Court as a body would be out of commission for 14 months our old friend, Representative James A. Bayard, Federalist from Delaware, would be one of the most vocal critics, accusing the Democratic Republicans of being afraid to let the Supreme Court sit due to concerns that they would be called upon to rule on the constitutionality of the repeal bill. Even Virginia Governor James Monroe wrote of his concern over the postponement of the Supreme Court session. On April 25th, 1802, he wrote to Jefferson that, quote, if the repeal was right, we should not shrink from the discussion in any course which the Constitution authorizes or take any step which argues a distrust of what is done or apprehension of the consequences. A postponement by law of the meeting of the court is also liable to other objections. It may be considered as an unconstitutional oppression of the judiciary by the legislature adopted to carry a preceding measure which was also unconstitutional. Despite Monroe's expressed concerns, Jefferson did not intervene, the Democratic-Republican leadership proceeded with the plan, and William Marbury would have to wait until 1803 for a ruling in his case. There would be another group of folks, however, who would not have to wait quite so long before moving on. As discussed last episode, the Indiana Territory had been split off from the Northwest Territory as the eastern portion of what's now dubbed the Midwest was rapidly increasing in population. By the 1800 census, the Northwest Territory, which, after Indiana was split off, was composed just of what we now know of as Ohio, had just over 45,000 residents. A number of leaders in the southeast corner of the territory centered around the town of Chillicothe started to put forward the idea of petitioning for statehood, as that would allow them to send voting members to Congress, as well as more autonomy in electing their own officials. One of the members of the territorial legislature, Thomas Worthington, was sent to Washington in the winter of 1801-1802 in order to start rubbing elbows to see what might be done to advance the idea of statehood. Worthington, a Virginian by birth, was able to make the acquaintance of Jefferson during this time, and with his tactic approval, Congress passed the Enabling Act, which the president signed on April 30th. This legislation authorized a constitutional convention in the Northwest Territory to draft a state constitution which would then be submitted to Congress for approval as the final step towards statehood. There would still prove to be one obstacle in the way of statehood for Ohio, namely the man who would be out of a job with statehood. Our old friend Arthur St. Clair had managed to keep his position as governor of the Northwest Territory since it was founded in 1787, despite the black eye of his ignoble defeat covered way back in episode 1.7. St. Clair, as a Federalist, was out of step with many of the other leaders in the territory who tended to favor the Democratic-Republican faction, and it was only due to his position being one appointed by the federal government that he was able to retain his office. Indeed, Worthington had traveled to Washington with a list of complaints about St. Clair's management of the territory, which he presented to Jefferson. Thus, it's quite possible that, even if the Enabling Act hadn't been passed, St. Clair would have been ousted as governor. But with the passage of the act, the stage was set for the people of the territory to take charge of their own affairs, something that is at the core of what has come to be dubbed Jeffersonianism. Though Jefferson had expressed his views on needed reforms to the judicial branch and advocated the cause of settlers in the West, he led by enabling others to act to advance the ideas that he supported. In his viewpoint, he was the enabler-in-chief who would facilitate, quote, the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights. But the rights, the authority, and the responsibility would always lie in Jefferson's mind with the people. With that said, my good people, it seems that our time together is drawing to a close. I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey through the Jefferson Presidency with a pivot back to foreign affairs and how those would come to impact the Western frontier. Special thanks again to Rob and Jamie from Totalis Rankium for providing the intro quotes for this episode. I highly recommend that you check out their podcast as they have provided me with much joy over the years and I have no doubt that they will you as well. Special thanks also to friends of the podcast, The Itinerant Band, who have graciously allowed me to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as our intro and outro music. You can find more about Totalus Rancium, The Itinerant Band, and of course, this podcast on the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com or you can reach out via social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at PresidenciesPodcast. Again, all one word. Thanks so much to all of you who have supported the podcast through various means, be it leaving a rating and review on iTunes, fulfilling books listed on the wish list linked on the website, or by sharing information about the podcast with others. This journey through presidential history is not a solo one. And I hope that you know how much I appreciate each of you. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. Coming up on
0: 5-Minute News.